When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. Hello, my name's Tim McMillan. It's my great privilege to welcome you to this series of Inspiring Stories. Inspiring Stories aims to tell the stories of prominent West Australians from all walks of life. This series is brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. In this episode, we're going to delve inside the life of someone who has led her way in the field of politics. Uh, She began her political life in 1998 as the member for Curtin, and since then has served as the Minister for Ageing, the Minister assisting the Prime Minister for Women's Issues, Minister for Education, Science and Training, Deputy Leader of the Opposition, currently Minister for Foreign Affairs and also at times Acting Prime Minister as well. Uh, She's a lady of very many hats. It's great to have the Honourable Julie Bishop with us. Thank you for your time. Great to be with you, Tim. What do I call you? (laughs) Julie. Julie, okay. (laughs) That's so, my name. So many different hats there. But look, I know you're an incredibly uh, busy lady, so we appreciate you uh, taking some time out uh, to chat to us for a little while about uh, who you are. Do you ever have any quiet time? When I'm running along Cottesloe Beach, it is blissful because mm. that's time when I can just think and reflect and work out what I'm going to do during the day. Not that I get to run along Cottesloe Beach every day, but when I'm back in Perth, it's a joy to start the day that way. Do you know, I, I actually remember being out shooting a promo very early one morning at Elizabeth Key, six, seven in the morning, and you were running past. And I think there was a moment where you thought, oh, God, why is there a news crew here? <laughs> I think that thought goes through my mind quite often. You have to that's, be constantly on, though, don't you? That's one of my other runs around the river. Yeah. So when I'm in Perth, I have lots of different runs, but Cottesloe Beach is my favourite. Mm, it's a good run. Um, you've, I suppose, become something of a pioneer for women in politics. Fair to say. Does that carry an extra burden for you? I'm the first female to hold the role of foreign minister. I'm the 38th Australian foreign minister and the first woman. Yes, it's important because I think it sends a message that women can do anything and that there are no jobs that women can't take on. However, I'm not there because I'm a woman. I've been in politics. This is my 20th year now. I've been in politics for some time and I have been in foreign affairs Um, since 2009, first as a shadow minister for foreign affairs and then since 2013 as foreign minister. So it's an area of politics that I love. I'm very passionate about it and I'm honoured to be representing Australia Mm. on the international stage. I'd love to talk to you more about uh, what's going on in your foreign ministry portfolio uh, in a little bit. But uh, the daily life of a politician, I'm sure it's changed a great deal since you started uh, we might get to that in a moment. But right now, what is life like? You get up in the morning. How does your day 
go from there? Well, Tim, it depends where I am. Mm. I can be in any city or any place in Australia because not only am I foreign minister, I'm also the deputy leader of the mm-hmm. Liberal Party and at times acting prime minister. And so I can be anywhere in Australia and likewise I can be in any number of places overseas. So it depends where I am. A typical parliamentary sitting day when we're in Canberra starts with a run in the morning into Parliament House, early morning meetings, leadership meetings and then uh, Parliament and question time, of course, is the feature of each day. But we have meetings and events right through to quite late at night. So mm. it's, it's a full day. When I'm overseas, likewise, you don't waste a moment. So back-to-back meetings and events are the norm. Sounds tough. No time for uh, random Facebook. (laughs) Bit of candy crush. There's always (laughs) time for a bit of random social media when you're sitting in a car or the interminable waits in airport lounges. Yes, I um, have been known to have a bit of a Twitter rant late at night when I'm waiting for a flight and thinking, hmm, I think I'll respond to this one. Emoji, emoji, emoji. Some other uh, world leaders like to uh, go on a Twitter (laughs) rant from time to time, don't they? Perhaps I should rephrase that. (laughs) Mine's more of a a, a Twitter dialogue. Yes, something more uh, intelligent and well thought out. How has that changed, though, over the years? Back from the, you know, when you first uh, became the member for Curtin, I imagine life as a politician has changed a great deal. It sounds like a, 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 new, a different <laughs> era, but back in 98, for example, about 90, 95% of the communication came via letter. Yep. And these days, if you get a letter, you'd virtually alert the police. Like, what? What? The, there's, a, there's a letter. Uh, most of it now comes by email. So uh, the use of technology has changed our lives dramatically. It also means you're much more accessible because people can contact you on um, mobile, by email. Uh, There's all the social media and people are very keen to have you as part of their Instagram feed or get a picture of you for Facebook. So it has changed the Mm. pace and the uh, type of communication that you have with people. The pressure? Of course. People want instantaneous responses. Um, back in 98, again, if you received a letter, well, you'd take a leisurely time to reply. But these days people want an instant answer. And so, of course, it increases the pressure on you and on your department and, and others who have to provide the information to respond to an inquiry. You're the member for Curtin. That's right. A resident of Perth, long time, That's long right. time West Australian. Yes, How since much 1983. I came from Adelaide in 1983. Yeah. How much time do you actually get to spend here? Uh, Not as much as I'd like. Uh, This is a beautiful place. I love coming home to Perth. And when I'm here, I absorb myself in Western Australian life. So I spend time in my electorate office, which is in Subiaco. Uh, My electorate, Curtin, which is the the western suburbs from the CBD through to Cottesloe Beach and up to Scarborough and south to Mosman Park, it's where I live, it's where my friends are, it's where mm. I go shopping. So I feel very comfortable in this part of the world and love catching up with friends and constituents. Love a West Coast Eagles game too? Love a West Coast Eagles game. I don't get to see the games very often, although um, in 2017 I was at the Derby and that's always great fun. I even got to toss the coin. I had to practice for a little while to make sure <laughs> I didn't do the ultimate humiliation, but I got through that. It's a good thing you haven't got Fremantle in your electorate there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've, I've, never been, I've never been able to uh, fake it. I've been West Coast <laughs> Eagles through and through. You're the number one ticket holder That's right. for the West Coast Eagles. How did that come about? I was on the board from 2008 to 2013, 
and that was a fantastic experience. I loved being on the board of a an elite sporting team. You learn so much from it, and I brought my legal and hopefully political skills to it. But then when I became foreign minister and we got into government in 2013, I just couldn't be there for the board no. meetings. And then I was asked, uh, Russell Gibbs, the uh, chairman, asked if I would be the number one ticket holder, and I said yes immediately. I was delighted to take on that role. How on earth did you fit all that in, honestly? I mean, you've painted a picture of what your day is well, like. How are, did you become an Eagles board member? And there are 24 hours in too. a day, and you don't how want much to do you waste sleep, any. Though? Honestly, how many hours a, a night do you well, need again, to sleep? Well, again, that depends. That depends. Some nights when we're travelling overseas... Uh, it can be three or four nights before I actually sleep in a bed because we are travelling from city to city and flying overnight. Um, but it depends very much. I would like to sleep for – I'd love to sleep for eight hours, but that never happens. No, that's the magic number, isn't it? Apparently. You won't know yourself. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know the last – well, I can't even think the last time I had eight hours sleep. But nevertheless, uh, I'd like to keep fit and healthy, yes. and I think that, that adrenaline um, drives you. You probably have to. Mm, I, I agree. To keep up Absolutely. with the pace of your job. Yeah, it's it's, it's demanding, but, mm. I, but I love it. So uh, there's a great deal of uh, natural energy around doing a job like this. Mm. Julie, we're going to take a, a break. We're going to get into uh, how you got into politics uh, next. The Honourable Julie Bishop is my special guest. You listen to WA's Inspiring Stories right here on 882 6PR. Back in a sec. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day. WA's family-owned funeral directors. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. My name is Tim McMillan, my special guest, Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party and the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Julie Bishop. Julie, thanks again for joining us. Great to be with you, Tim. Tell us how you came from a cherry farm in South Australia. Uh, to practice law here in WA and on to being the foreign minister for Australia. That's a long journey, <laughs> but let's just start. Story. Let's go from the cherry farm. Okay, the cherry farm. I grew up on a property in the Adelaide Hills. My parents were cherry and apple growers. It sounds idyllic. It was beautiful, and it is a beautiful property. My brother still owns it. My parents are both dead now, but my brother still owns it. And so uh, going back home is always quite nostalgic. And cherry season is just a glorious time. It's a <laughs> short it? six-week period, but cherries are just my favourite fruit. Conveniently falling around Christmas time. Very I just convenient. associate it with Christmas. Uh, then I went to school and university in South Australia. I practised as a lawyer. I moved over to Perth in the early 80s when it was such an exciting time to be a Western Australian. State of 19, excitement. 1983, we won the America's Cup. I'll never yep. forget it. I thought, this is the place that I want to stay. <laughs> and I've loved it every every moment since. And then I was a partner in a law firm here and became the managing partner. In the mid-1990s, I took a sabbatical and went to Harvard Business School. Yep. And while I was there, away from home, away from everybody, I started to think about a career change. And coincidentally, one of the lecturers talked to us about going into public office. And a lot of the Americans in the in the class thought that that was a terrific idea, not the Australians. They sort of mm. rolled their eyes at that thought. But it actually struck a chord with me. And it, I must have been in that state at the time that I was looking for a career change, looking for something that would challenge me. And I thought, I want to be part of the national debates on the national mm. issues. As a lawyer, I'd done a lot of work in um, the area of different federal laws, corporate mm. law in particular. And I thought, yes, I'd like to be a legislator. And part of that 
national dialogue and see what I could do to help others. And my family had a little bit of political history. My mother was the local mayor. My father had been involved in um, apple and cherry industry politics. And so this sense of public service was probably ingrained. And so I came back to Australia and said, I'd like to run for the Liberal Party for the seat of Curtin. Well, sort of like that. That's a shortened version of it. Just like that. Not quite just like that, but that's a shortened version. Yeah. Well, I I can imagine that uh, giving away a a very successful career in law, which it was to that point, wasn't it? You were a, you were a yeah. partner in a big firm. Uh, I, was, I was the managing partner of Clayton Newts here, a, a big Perth firm, and we'd just become a national firm, so I was part of the National Management Committee, and it was a very rewarding and challenging career, but I'd been in it for, well, by 1998, I'd been a lawyer for 20 years, mm. and uh, I'd reached a point where I was looking for a career change. I thought I would go into corporate work, but mm. um, politics came up on the horizon. Politics called. It, and it did. I saw it as a calling and thought that that would be one of the um, best contributions that you could make and uh, to my state, Western Australia, and to my country. Was it like a bolt out of the blue when it came? Though you mentioned your time at uh, when you were at, at the Harvard Business School. Was it was it sort of bubbling away in the background of your mind, or was it just like a, a light bulb moment where you thought, "Yes, this is what I need to do"? I think uh, a lot had been happening in my life that was inexorably taking me towards this point. But it wasn't until I was away where it all came together and I thought, yes, that's what I want to do. Mm. And once I got it in my mind, there was no stopping me. Mm. That was the aim. That was the goal. And I really wanted to achieve it. But I guess over many years, even though I hadn't ever articulated or thought that I wanted to go into politics, I think I was heading that way. State politics, though flirted with the idea is, is, is one way of putting it, I think. <laughs> well, that, that's your word. I wouldn't say that. Um, but after, why, uh, why federal, not state? Well, back in 98, that was my interest. Yep. The national laws that I'd been involved with, federal politics was a, a, a real calling. John Howard had been elected in 1996. There was a, a sense of momentum around the uh, Liberal Party at a federal level and, I re- level, and I really wanted to be part of it. The Liberal Party has always represented um, my outlook on life, my values, my interests, uh, reflected very much in the Liberal Party. Um, self-reliance, personal responsibility, that spirit of enterprise, a small business. My parents were yep. typical Menzian liberals. I was going to say, do you come from a, a staunch liberal family? Very much so, yeah. yes. My grandfather was a um, chairman of a local Liberal Party branch and he supported Sir Thomas Playford to get into state politics and Sir Thomas Playford was the longest serving Premier of South Australia so they were very close friends of our family. Mm. So I'd been surrounded by uh, Liberal values and uh, the Liberal Party all my life but I didn't actually join and then decide to become a politician until the mid-90s. And no regrets? Absolutely no. (laughs) There have been some challenges along the way, I can assure you. but. It makes you resilient, and as they say, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Do you find uh, people coming up to you and wanting to argue about your argue with you about your politics much? Uh, not so much now. Sometimes when there's a, a, a big issue running, like mm. back when the GST was being introduced, that was a real barbecue stopper. People wanted to discuss the GST and uh, the pros and cons. These days in foreign policy, you get people more curious and interested, but mm. not necessarily disagreeing with you. Um, but I'm always available for conversations with people, always up for a debate or a discussion. 
I imagine at the moment GST probably comes up a bit when you're back here in Perth because it's obviously such a big topic here for people. It's a constant in constant Western Australia. Constant source of angst. That's right. It is um, a constant. There will be a resolution to it. It's very difficult when you're operating within a federation to ensure that the states get a fair go. I think everybody's acknowledged that Western Australia is not getting a fair go. Nobody yeah. imagined that the GST floor would be as low as it as it became, but it will it will come back up as um, economic circumstances mm. change. But I'm sure we can do better. I think uh, West Australians have been on a bit of a, an education crash course in GST and 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 how it works and 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 how those figures. Uh, come to be. So we're probably the most uh, educated state in Australia about how the GST actually works now. Well, Not because no, we want to be. <laughs> yeah, that's no bad thing. I wish some of the other states were better educated as to how uh, they get their share of the GST. Do you feel a pressure though as a West Australian to represent West Australia um, when you're in Canberra as well though? Of course. Given, given you, you are in obviously a very senior position and a difficult position on that. Of course and I represent a Western Australian constituency but I'm also the deputy leader of a national party. So you have to take into account the views of all of the states and all of your colleagues. But we have some very good, robust debates in the cabinet. Mm. And we've got a number of Western Australians in our cabinet. So you you keep arguing the case, but it also has to be fair across the country. There's no point in advantaging one to the disadvantage of another for no good purpose. 2017, the weirdest year ever. As a politician for you? Oh, you couldn't have scripted some of the things that went on in 2017. (laughs) The citizenship issue for a start. I mean, this is a provision that's been in the Constitution since 1901 at a time when the citizenship we were talking about was British. Mm. And then the changes in the citizenship laws over time means that uh, that section of the Constitution hadn't really been looked at in the context of dual citizenship and this idea of gaining eligibility by descent through your parents, through your grandparents, through spouses. And so it really shone a light on um, how we become eligible for parliament. Overseas, people were nonplussed. They, mm. they would ask me, what is this Australia problem about? Tell me again, <laughs> yeah. what, what does it mean? And it was rather hard to explain, but nevertheless, the High Court has been clarifying it, perhaps in ways that people didn't expect. It's quite bizarre, isn't it? Because I think as a, as, a, as a member of the public I speak now, I think uh, a lot of people are, are wondering what the problem is. I mean, obviously it is, it's, it's enshrined in the Constitution there, but I'm wondering how it really impacts on a person's ability to serve their, well, their country, you, their portfolio, if you look at it their constituents. In the uh, simplest possible way, what the Constitution is saying is in order for you to be eligible for federal parliament, you must have only one citizenship, Mm. only one, and that's Australian. And I think most Australians would agree with that. But since that time, there have been all these different changes to the citizenship law which enable people to have dual citizenship. Mm. But the constitution still remains, no, you can only have one citizenship. Now, how people go about renouncing dual citizenship that they didn't even apply for or didn't even know they had becomes very complicated and very complex In a sense, the laws of other countries are determining whether or not we're eligible Mm. for parliament. So I think that um, the old saying, if you want to know about your family tree, go into politics, has never been truer than today. I'll ask you about uh, some of the other fascinating aspects of your foreign ministry portfolio soon. Obviously, uh, we're living in in the Trump era. 
and the North Korea era. So uh, I'd love to get into that uh, with you very shortly. We're going to uh, take a little break for the moment, though. My special guest uh, on WA's Inspiring Stories uh, here on 882 6PR, the Honourable Julie Bishop. Back with more soon. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Uh, Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest, Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party and the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Julie Bishop. Uh, Julie, we we spoke just a little bit about uh, your flirtation, for want of a better word, with uh, state politics. Let's go back to 2001. Uh, the Liberals had uh, lost that state election. There was supposedly some arrangement uh, for you to uh, take the reins there, an arrangement with Richard Court, uh, Colin Barnett and you. Can, you. can you talk us through that? Gee, it's a long time ago now, but I remember we lost the 2001 election at a state level. Uh, Richard Court was Premier and Colin Barnett was the Deputy Leader. And in the aftermath, when the party was looking at the loss and looking at how we could recover, um, it was suggested that perhaps they should bring in some new talent, fresh blood into mm. the state party. And a few of the senior members of the Liberal Party approached me and asked if I would be interested in joining the state team and eventually becoming the leader. And it was a very different idea, but not novel. I mean, mm. other Federal members have gone into state parliament and state parliamentarians have gone into federal parliament. Uh, but it was not something that I decided was in my interest uh, because there were such senior people asking me to consider it, of course, um, through respect for them, I did. So not really that tempted? No, I believed that my future lay in federal politics. But when your party or senior people in your party ask you to consider a proposal, of course, you take it seriously. Yep. Uh, but of History shows that uh, Colin Barnett became the leader and went on to become the Premier of the state. So all's well that ends well. And of course, uh, a a career for Colin Barnett that wrapped up pretty recently too. That's right. Mm. That's right. So Colin's now moved on. But the Liberal Party to state level has had mixed fortunes. Overall, the Liberal Party in this state has been exceedingly strong as it has been federally. I think of the last... when Menzies became Prime Minister in 1949, so about 68, 69 years ago, uh, the Liberal Party and the National Party have been in coalition for about 46, 47 of those years. So it is the most successful political movement, mm. if you like, uh, the coalition at a state and federal level. You've worked alongside a few uh, Prime Ministers that will, will go down in the history books uh, in their own right. Uh, John Howard, Tony Abbott, now Malcolm Turnbull. Three, That's right. Three quite different characters. What do you think it was about those three? And I'll get you to individually address them if you if you don't mind. What was it about those three that made them prime minister material? They are all very forceful personalities. They are already uh, you know being seen as so strong in their convictions. If you mm-hmm. look back at um, John Howard. Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, they all have very different views but are very um, strong, self-confident about about their views and I think that helps to make a good leader. Uh, They have led their party uh, at very different times respectively. So a great deal of it has to do with chance and circumstance but Mm. they were the right people at the right time. 
any of those? Uh, I know you're going to give me a politician's answer here, Julie. <laughs> Who's your favourite? Well, Malcolm Turnbull's been one of my dearest friends for such a long time. Yeah. I met Malcolm back in the WA Inc. days when oh, I right. was a lawyer for a number of uh, people who were caught up in the WA Inc., not the Labor side, but a number of business people who'd been caught up in WA Inc. And Malcolm Turnbull was a very well-known barrister in, in Sydney and we yes. were uh, looking for lawyers from outside town to come in and represent people. And I met Malcolm back in those days and we've been very good friends ever since. And it's great being able to work alongside somebody that's actually a, a friend yep. as well as a as well as a political colleague. Yep, uh, a difficult twenty seventeen uh, for Malcolm Turnbull as well. Uh, how do you see twenty eighteen playing out? Well, Malcolm ended two thousand seventeen on a very high note. We won two by elections, and for an incumbent government, that is uh, probably a record. We won the New England by election and then the Benelong by election, and both of those as a result of the citizenship mm. saga. And uh, then Malcolm had dealt with a number of issues that had been uh, dividing the coalition, same-sex marriage in particular. We also ended on a very strong note with the um, the mid-year um, economic review, the MAIFO uh, resetting of the budget for 2018 and beyond. So I think the momentum's all his way now. When you have to uh, perform the role of acting Prime Minister... Do you wake up with an extra spring in your step? Because it's, <laughs> I mean, as it, responsibilities go, they don't come much higher than that. That's true. It only occurs if the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister are unavailable, and that did happen through 2017. I take the role very seriously. Mm. My first um, effort during 2017, I spent it in Perth, and there was a, a lot of support and interest at having mm. the acting Prime Minister operating out of Western Australia. It does highlight that three-hour time difference, I can assure you, for the East Coast journalists. Yes. It's a, a significant responsibility. But, of course, in this day and age, the Prime Minister is always available on the end of the phone if mm. he's overseas or wherever he might be. And it's, a, it's quite a challenge, though, to keep up with the amount of work that a Prime Minister, even acting Prime Minister, has to, has to get on top of. You mentioned just uh, there in, in, in your last answer about dealing with journalists. How has that changed over the years? Has it gotten more fractious over the years? The 24-7 media cycle does change things enormously. There's a, uh, an insatiable demand for content, a mm. new story, a new angle, because it's so competitive and the space is so congested. Yep. It is different and you have these uh, 24-hour news channels and so they're looking for political talking heads. And that gives people who would not otherwise have had the opportunity to be on national TV or national radio the opportunity to get a bit of a profile. So it has changed things quite dramatically. It also means that there's this never-ending quest for new news. Mm. Does it mean that you personally have to be on your guard even more because it's so easy for a little soundbite to be... Uh, grabbed either without your knowledge or taken out of context or it happens used, all the time. you know, it happens that must all the time. Frustrate the hell out of you. <laughs> yeah, there are aspects of it that are frustrating, <laughs> but journalists have a job to do and I've got a job to do. And you just try and keep it in context. But there are times Can when. I ask, are we doing our job though as journalists? I, look, I, I think that the pressures of um, the 24 7 media cycle do allow uh, for a fraying of those standards. I have to say that sometimes uh, journalists will say, look, I just didn't have time to check the story with you. And you say, that's, that, that's just not good enough. You no. have to check your sources or they'll, they'll be in such a rush to meet deadline that 
um, perhaps the standards you would expect aren't met. Yep. Guilty, I think. Guilty as charged. We have to uh, put our hand up for, for that from time to time. It is a tough game, though, as you say. I mean, even the, the, the turnover of news now is, is almost by the hour, isn't it? And it's global. Um, this is not just worrying about the Australian content. Uh, there's a constant stream of um, international news, and that's likewise 24-7. So if you take what's happening in the United States, that mm. can fill a, a day's news here. But if you juggle that... It's trying to get a perspective, and I'm not sure. I really am not sure how people get their news these days. I know we talk about a lot of news coming from Facebook on, over social media, um, grabs off TV, but does anybody ever do a really in-depth analysis anymore about political parties and their policies, or is it just a sense of um, what they think might be going on mm. as opposed to really understanding? I, I guess yeah. that troubles me. No, it, Likewise, I think uh, most people are just sort of bombarded with the the stream of of, of updates. They don't really get uh, how much, you ever much keep of the background on top of picture. It. Yeah, yep, it's a battle. Um, I mentioned at the top of this uh, show your very many uh, portfolios and different hats you've worn. Uh, Foreign minister yes. must take you to some fascinating places. Is it the most interesting hat you've had to wear so far? Without doubt, I longed to be foreign minister when I first went into politics. You know, you have a secret aim to achieve something and mine was certainly to be the foreign minister if that were at all possible. And so now to have been foreign minister since 2013 is a rare privilege and I enjoy every moment of it. It's the most challenging, demanding role I can imagine, but it's also one of the most fascinating. Mm. And to be able to be part of um, global developments, um, have a voice on the issues that matter to our region and beyond, and to actually be part of trying to influence the external environment and ensure that Australia maximises uh, our influence and our ability to shape that environment is certainly a great challenge. I think people here have an, have a, an impression of how we're perceived overseas, but you actually go there and, and talk to these people. How, how do other people... Australia, around the world think of Australia. Australia is very highly regarded. I agree with you. I don't know that um, every Australian would understand how highly regarded we are overseas. We're seen as somewhat of an economic miracle. We've had 27 consecutive years of uninterrupted economic growth. That is, is a world a record. World record. Yep. No other country has ever achieved that, and yet we tend to take that for granted. Uh, we're also seen as a strong liberal democracy, um, open, free, democratic institutions, our political system, as crazy as it might seem to us, is actually very stable. We hold elections regularly. You vote one team in, you vote the other team out, and uh, there's a huge level of political stability, believe it or not. Well, it's all relative, D- isn't it? Despite the uh, revolving door of, of leaders. Well, it's, it is relative. But we're also, we're also seen as a, a, a very reliable and trusted trading partner, um, if it's made in Australia or produced in Australia, people immediately equate that with high quality. So our goods and services are sought after around the world. That's why we're focusing on free trade agreements to ensure that Australian mm. businesses can sell their um, goods and services into the huge consumer markets in our region and globally. All right, I might ask you some more just in a moment. We need to head to a break, but just a little more on our our place, particularly uh, in the region, because it is such a, an active region at the moment. The Honourable Julie Bishop is my special guest. You're listening to WA's Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. 
Generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. My name's Tim McMillan, my special guest, Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party and the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Julie Bishop. Uh, Julie, Foreign Ministry, lots going on. Absolutely. We've never lived. Particularly in our region. We've never lived in more uncertain, competitive times. And our region in particular is of great interest because it's our neighbourhood, it's where we live, but it's also where the economic power is shifting Mm. from west to east. Uh, China, India, Japan, South Korea, some of the major economies in the world are in our region. And some of the newer emerging economies like Cambodia, Vietnam, and Indonesia, Singapore, very strong economies. So it's a fascinating area. It's also an area where you're seeing um, rising powers coming up against established powers, China and the United States, for example. In fact, in 2017, we released a foreign policy white paper which set out um, Australia's values and interests and priorities in terms of our international engagement over, say, the next 10 years. And this is a very fascinating analysis Mm. of the um, congestion, competition, uncertainty that we're seeing in our region and how Australia can best be placed to cope with it, to uh, manage the threats, but also take advantage of the opportunities. Managing the threats, North Korea possibly being one of them. I mean, as uh, as someone sort of sitting back and absorbing the news and and watching what's going on, it's... uh, It's hard, to, it's hard to decipher what is just the, the bluster of two very strong personalities, shall we say, Donald Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un. It's hard to, uh, to, to, to break through that and see what is well, the actually really a threat. Yeah, the tensions on the Korean Peninsula are solely due to the fact that North Korea is developing illegal weapons. It's in breach of numerous United Nations Security Council resolutions, banning it from developing ballistic Um, missiles and nuclear weapons, and yet it has um, carried out numerous, dozens and dozens of ballistic missile tests and a number of nuclear weapons tests. And this is in direct defiance of the UN Security Mm. Council. Uh, Donald Trump has changed the narrative. Uh, In the past, uh, Beijing, even though China was the uh, major um, economic partner of North Korea, China said, look, this is an issue between Washington and Pyongyang. But because Donald Trump has brought Beijing into the picture, you now see China playing a much more active role in trying to manage North Korea and its illegal behaviour. Hence, China has joined with the US, Russia, Britain and France on the Security Council and countries around the world in imposing economic sanctions There's enormous political pressure being brought to bear on North Korea and we hope that through this economic and political pressure, North Korea will recalculate the risk and and come back to the negotiating table. Does it make it harder to pursue that level-headed diplomatic outcome when you've got a character like Donald Trump in the mix? He's unorthodox, but it does have outcomes. Unexpected, uncertain, but they nevertheless are different outcomes. And what we find is that now um, the Secretary of State can carry out the diplomatic discussions with other countries. For example, North Korea is being isolated diplomatically. A number of countries have withdrawn their 
ambassadors from North Korea or have expelled North Korea's ambassadors from their country, and the sanctions are continuing to be ratcheted up. Uh, for the first time, we're seeing sector-wide sanctions on North Korea, you know, banning the export of their textiles or uh, banning the import of um, LNG and the like. Is it working, though? It will work. It will work. We've seen sanctions work elsewhere. Uh, sanctions worked in Iran. Uh, the agreement that was struck between the uh, United States, Iran and others came about as a result of Iran feeling the pressure of sanctions. The people uh, resent the economic sanctions and the hardship that it brings mm. and they force political change. So sanctions can work, but they have to be universally applied. They can't be breached by others and people can't get around the sanctions. Otherwise, it makes a mockery of them. Just a couple of other things on your plate. Islamic State. <laughs> we I suppose have... the, uh, the the fading memories now for a lot of people of Al-Qaeda, but uh, as well you've had MH370, MH17 to deal with as well. There's been so much happening within your domain. There are a number of challenges that we still face globally and regionally. Terrorism has um, become one of the biggest challenges, whether it's um, ISIS, although we've had some success in Iraq and Syria in uh, claiming back the territory that ISIS had claimed as its caliphate. Uh, we have um, thwarted terrorist attacks here in Australia. We're very conscious of the increasing terrorist threat in places like the Philippines um, and Indonesia, and we are working very closely with partners in the region to counter terrorism and the narrative that drives this, this hatred. Um, the rise of protectionism and anti-globalisation has also been a real challenge for us as some countries put up the barriers after decades of there being huge economic growth and lifting hundreds of thousands of millions of people out of poverty through open trading systems. There's been a, uh, an anti-globalisation movement that we've tried very hard to, uh, to counter. And also technological advances are disrupting the way we live and work and travel and communicate, and that can also make people uneasy. So there are no end of challenges mm. in our region. How many more years have you got in you? Oh, as many as my party room will put up with me and the uh, the, the electorate. And <laughs> but have you have you set a, a a year in mind where you thought where you think you know I might just uh, go back to the cherry farm and, <laughs> and I, pick cherries? I think I'll know when it's time. But I'm certainly enjoying what I'm doing at present. And you mentioned some of the challenges: um, MH17, MH370. There've been some crises and some tragedies that also make this a very challenging job. But while ever I'm serving the Australian people and uh, driving our national interests both here and overseas, then um, I hope that I'm making a positive contribution. Is, this, is there anything left for you to do? Is, is there still some something on your political bucket list that you, that you want to reach? Well, the White Paper sets out the framework of how our foreign policy should develop over the next 10 years. So I certainly want to be part of implementing that. I don't that. mean to sound like it's we're close to the end by no. mentioning bucket list. But. <laughs> um, then another initiative of mine, which is the New Colombo Plan, yep. uh, was an opportunity to provide support for young undergraduates in Australian universities to live and study and undertake work experience in countries in our region. And by the end of 2018... 30,000 young Australians will have lived and studied and worked overseas under the new Colombo plan. So I'm really keen to see that um, expand even further. And I've also embraced innovation within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. We have an innovation hub called the Innovation Exchange, and we are 
embracing creative and different ways of tackling traditional problems. And I really want to see some more progress in that area. We're coming towards the end. I have to ask you, would you like to be leader? <laughs> I always get asked this question. I, I wonder why. I hope, I hope <laughs> I've made it clear that I am loving the job that I'm doing. Um, Malcolm Turnbull is our Prime Minister. There's no vacancy. <laughs> I have uh, reached um, a point in my career where I find um, foreign affairs um, a truly absorbing and fascinating portfolio. So um, I can't ask for much more than that. If the party wants you, though? Well, we'll have to wait and see what the party wants. Uh, as it stands, the party is very very supportive of Malcolm Turnbull as our leader, as am I. Would you a Prime Minister from Perth, though? <laughs> You're teasing me now. <laughs> what is there uh, that you would like to hang your hat on when you do retire, though? What is, is, there, is there one thing that you would like to, to leave as a legacy? In foreign affairs, uh, very or, much. Or across the entire well, span. Well, in, in foreign affairs, very much um, our focus on the Pacific Mm. And I hope to do a lot more work in uh, Australia's engagement in the Pacific. The Pacific Island nations are uh, countries for whom we have a particular responsibility. That's the way I've always seen it. And so I'd like to ensure that Australia does much more in building peace, prosperity and stability in the Pacific. And the Eagles in 2018, how do you see them going? Grand final. (laughs) No question. (laughs) Nick Natanui back. Nick uh, Nat's back. Yeah, yep. fine form and... Got some new blood. And a new stadium. Why not? Let's aim for the top. How good's the new stadium? It's fantastic. I had a tour recently and I think it's world-class facility. It's one of the best I've seen. And I know that a lot of our interstate rivals are very much looking forward to it, fearing it to some extent because it's such a fantastic facility, but also very much looking forward to playing the Eagles and um, Dockers over here in Perth in the beautiful new stadium. It's It's a very classy environment. And hopefully 2018, uh, a, a political year uh, with less distractions like dual citizenship. That would be nice, yes. That would be great. It'll be, it'll be a year of consolidation and delivery as we lead into the 2019 election year. All right. Julie Bishop, thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you over the last uh, hour or so. It's been uh, great to uh, get to know some of the, uh, the Julie Bishop uh, that we perhaps don't see on the TV and in the newspaper. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a delight and I'm looking forward to 2018 with a great deal of enthusiasm. As we all are. Thank you very much. We look forward to uh, you joining us next time on another edition of WA's Inspiring Stories. Bye for now. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.